Welcome to a discussion at PageFair. This is a series of conversations about the future of media and the open web. My name is Johnny Ryan. I hope you enjoy what you're about to hear. Let us know at pagefair.com. Scott is a particularly interesting person to speak to about the crisis in media and advertising now because he's been on both sides. Uh, the position he recently departed from is that he was the founder of Tech Lab at the IAB. So Scott, thanks for taking the time. Well, thank you. You did a lot of, of interesting things when you were at Tech Lab. Um, I think the one that probably gained the most attention from people who weren't looking at the day-to-day -day work of Tech Lab was your mea culpa. This was the post you wrote in October 2015 where you said, we messed up. And essentially... Um, owned up on behalf of a very large industry. That's a lot for one man to do, um, but owned up uh, to an awful lot of sins that the digital advertising industry had been committing and accumulating over the, the last decade and a half. So will you take us back to that time and what caused that? And I, I think it might have been that you met up with IO and had a, uh, a chat. Was that the, the thing that triggered this mea culpa? I think the uh, ultimate decision to write the piece uh, and put it down on paper, yeah. Uh, there was a meeting between me and IO in, at New Mexico in September 2015. You know, but having said that, um, the creation of the tech lab and all the working groups, which I can get into as well, um, had an element of user experience built into it. Um, and that was by design because one of the things that, in my observations over the it was 20 years uh, since I started building websites with banner ads without ad servers, back, starting way back in 94, 95, um, was that... I think they were called rectangles back then, Scott. All rectangles, right. And, and I'm not sure <laughs> what the pixel size was. <laughs> uh, and, and, and generally speaking, um, and, and I'll share that story in my first banner, but you know, generally speaking, all of those years... Um, you know, when I when I put the tech lab together, it was let's make sure we're threading user experience as we can into the creation of any technical uh, protocol that has to do with advertising. Mm. The um, the meeting with IO I took uh, and met with uh, those folks uh, was a behind the scenes uh, meeting, and <clears throat> to understand where their points of view were coming from, and you know, after a good forty five minutes an hour discussion. Uh, the one thing that resonated to, with me that was in my control um, that I could improve from that control was to say, you know what, their argument around user experience is exceptionally valid. I, I'm not going to uh, say that any of their other arguments were, but that one was something that had resonated with me and frankly had resonated with those of us on the tech side who have been looking at what was happening with our products in the B2C environments for years, uh, since leading to the recession, really. And so I think what you saw when I wrote that piece was basically some people say, well, Scott, you fell on the sword for a $400 you know, billion dollar supply chain. Um, I, don't look at, I, I, you know, I didn't necessarily look at it. I, I looked at it as a, you know what, we have, a time, we, we have an opportunity here to reset on some really critical areas. And some of that was the relationship between the tech group and the sales group and publishing. Some of that was the reset between ad tech stacks 
and this notion of how we all got drunk off our reach and scale and retargeting. Um, some of it was to basically say, you know what, if we're not practicing in the business of practicing good customer service, then what are we in the business of? You know, maybe this is an opportunity to go back to that first rectangle. Uh, you briefly um, diagnosed some of the ills, but how did we get to this place? You know, what were the worst leaps that, that in retrospect were, were negative? You know, when I think back, I think about those renaissance years of uh, really creative artwork that we were doing. Um, you know, those were, those were a lot of fun years, a lot of learning that we were able to do. And next thing, you know, right around the corner was ad tech. And, you know, I go back to those days, though, when, when I, you know, in, in 2014, I think it was Senator McCain was asking a lot about malvertising and, and U.S. Congress and, and, you know, asking publishers, why isn't there an, an, an opt-in mechanism uh, for consumers versus opting out in defense of the ad choices program? And the response and my response has always been consumers have opted in. They've opted into free content. And. That was a good 10 or 15 year run up until that recession when there was there very little issues with consumers opting into free content and their user experience. Next thing you know, we have the recession and this was spelled out in the piece that we messed up that um, ad tech was there. We were trying to maximize yield. Our print revenues were declining or our broadcast revenues were going to tank. Everybody's revenues were going to tank. Um, and, you know, it became much easier to just add more ad units to the page because there was no subscription model. Uh, I like to tell the story when I came back to the news world for a second tour, one of my large Metro dailies had 37 ad units on the front. And the sales team wanted to know why their Southwest Airlines uh, airport <laughs> coming across the plane was stuttering. I said, well, let's take all the other ads off the page. We'll find out if it's still stuttering on your machine. And sure enough, the airplane flew pretty smooth in their, uh, their rectangle ad. Um, and so you could tell back time, <laughs> maximize that we were destroying the processing unit on many people's machines <laughs> during those days. And does your, did the sales uh, organizations understand? Absolutely um, they didn't understand it. Those of us on the tech division did. We saw what was going on. Uh, we tried to optimize the, the site designs as much as we could during those years. But we also had to make money. Um, and in some cases, during those years, it shot us in the foot uh, from user experience. And so when you, when you read that piece, when I was describing uh, our work to scrape dimes, it could have cost us dollars in consumer retention and consumer loyalty. Um, I think that's where you saw a little bit of... Mm. Uh, consumers saying, hmm, there's an ad blocker here. And that started the conversation a little bit more and more in that community. Uh, that is fascinating. The, that phrase, scrape dimes or count dimes, comes from, I think, John Patton, doesn't it? Uh, your uh, old yeah. boss at uh, Digital First Media. Um, and there's, there's, an interesting, <laughs> there's an interesting subtext to part of your story, which is that the engineers knew and the non-engineers did not. And in such an immature medium, which is so engineering heavy, um, we're maybe seeing a slow shift in the balance of influence where engineers' voices are getting a little bit louder. Uh, and, and by the way, by engineers, one could say designers as well. I, I agree. I agree with that. I think um, um, 
for me, being an engineer and, and a developer way back in the day, um, actually over the last eight years, I had to go the other way and speak business. And it was because there's always been this tension in publishing between sales divisions uh, and the tech division. Even when I created the tech lab, this manifested itself on the Ivy board to some extent, and because that's a sales division. And for me, it was really important to find ways to partner with the sales division because quite frankly, I like my job. I wanted revenue too. And for me to be able to translate and speak their language as opposed to going the other way, I think those of us on the tech side who can actually speak the revenue language, um, that's where solid partnerships have, have really manifested themselves. And I think some of the core digital products out there in some of these organizations, you can see it where there's mm. ships internally. Mm. So you finally climbed the mountain <laughs> through, through your various layers of experience. You finally get to a place where you can influence industry-wide and you, you join the IAB. And your next project is you establish this thing called the Tech Lab. Will you talk about that? So I often went, had conversations about joining the IAB. And, and one of the first things that came to mind was... Um, Back in the years of developing sites, especially around the recession thereafter, those of us who are developing and our divisions were developing, when it comes to the P&L, we're usually the L, and we're obviously looking at expenses very carefully. And when you have to develop responsive websites between desktop and mobile, that's one thing. When you have to develop responsive sites to respond to different ad display standards, that's ludicrous. And at the time, we in the publishing world kind of shot ourselves in the foot by having multiple standards between the OPA, the IAB, and whatever else. So my feedback to them was, I'm going to go do this. We'll find out what it, where it leads. But the first thing is I need the commitment from the publishing community, my, the board members and, and my peers, to say it, we can have our membership and other trades, but there has to be one standard technical standards group. Otherwise, all we're doing is we're branching ourselves. And therefore spending more money going out the door. That was the first hurdle I needed to clear on those things. The second was, um, at the time, if you recall, the traffic attendant, good intent um, initiative from the IAB was happening, and it was around anti-fraud initiatives. And, and having uh, come from the publishing world and having spent time in ad tech, um, I was one of the few that had both uh, experiences and, and had cleaned up a, a fair share of uh, non-human traffic over the years as well. Uh, and so what I, I was very attracted to the possibility of putting these programs in place. Um, so when I joined the IAB, I partnered up internally with uh, Mike Zanis, who's now the CEO of Trustworthy Accountability Group. Uh, he, being a lawyer in D.C. and me being an entrepreneur and engineer, it was a perfect match. Uh, we put our brains together and started to formulate plans of how to maximize uh, the ability to generate programs of, of you know, anti-fraud, anti-malware, anti-piracy, these types of things that ended up becoming tag. And at the same time, I needed to figure out a way to centralize the technical standards. Up until that point, the IAB and different centers of excellence had different technical standards. And, and I needed to make sure that the sandbox was intact and all the technical toys in one area. Um, so, the, and, and I had some really great partnerships with executives within the IAB who saw the vision I was trying to put in place and said, yep, move M right over here, move VAST over here, move open RTB over here, take these and put them over here. Well, what was interesting is one day I got a call from 
a commerce minister of an Eastern European country who said, we see this thing called OpenRTB. Uh, we would love to uh, generate programmatic, I think is what you call it, in our backyard. We're hoping to clone it and put it OpenRTB in our country. And I said, well, that's interesting, but you can't do that. Um, it's a specification. And if you clone it and you put it in your backyard, then it doesn't be standard. So I needed to find a way to make these technical protocols global. And the membership criteria of the IAB at the time uh, is IAB US. We had all these IABs around the world. So I needed the technical infrastructure that was a separate organization that was a pillar that all the IABs around the world could lean on for their technical standards. And between that and the, the rise of TAG, TAG needing a technical arm for its work, um, that's how I came up with the idea to spin out the tech lab. Randall and the board were very supportive of these types of things. And uh, next thing you know, we announced TAG and tech lab on the same day, two, five, four, six, six, five, Now we're at the part of the story where tech lab is up and running. You've made your mea culpa. And back to ad blocking, you've been looking at ad blocking as an issue for several years at this point. It's, it's just one of the things on your radar. One of the initiatives you came up with was the lean initiative, which when I read the lean initiative, I think that makes perfect sense. And these are things that should have happened 15 years ago. You know, I think it was more about rallying around principles um, and putting us on a path to uh, better business practices, uh, whether it was B2B or B2C. And, and let me explain. Um, you know, one of the things I learned during my IB years from a public policy perspective is that if you really want to move the needle on things uh, as an organization, you start with a set of principles and as opposed to necessarily coming out with standards. Because if you come out with standards or technical standards without the appropriate market rally point, um, you're basically just chucking a document that says a bunch of technical stuff in a PDF to the market and we'll see what happens. And so, you know, I think rallying around a set of principles that lend itself to future standards um, uh, makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I don't think people connected the dots internally at trade associations in the past that's, that starting with principles can equal technical standards. Maybe sometimes starting with principles uh, equals other standards, but Nobody ever tried to attempt to make it a technical equation, I don't think. And, but I, from the, from the legal perspective and the public policy perspective and my observations and working with different uh, governments and, and lobbyists, um, it was easy for me to do. Now, where Lean came from uh, was, ironically, uh, before we had released the, the, the blog post and the mea culpa, uh, or we messed up, it was uh, a few of us in the tech lab a few of my staff, we got together and we started thinking in terms of user experience, user experience, user experience. Interesting. And then the, the next acronym was DEAL, again, uh, focusing on the ad block issue. So DEAL was one of those, we had a couple of different ways to describe it, but somebody initially asked me before Lean um, was announced, before we messed up was written. Somebody asked me, Scott, we've got this ad block and we're seeing ad blocking rates rise. What do we do? And I said, well, describe it. I said, well, consumers have ad blockers and we're seeing that there's some larger discrepancies in the ad delivery. We don't understand why consumers are ad block or installing ad blockers. And my first response was, well, have you asked them? Um, you know, if you're in the business of people. That's a very smart response. 
I'm like, well, guys, we've all been in the publishing world. You're, st- you know, it's it's time you take your head out of your Google Analytics reports and and actually say maybe we should email some of our subscribers or people we know or try to figure out how to message them to find out what is the user experience maybe they're looking for. So to me, it really wasn't that complicated. Where it became complicated was the notion of how do you ask them who has a who has an ad blocker. And this is where the press the uh, press conference I did before, and and I think the market thought there was a mea culpa based on my press conference of there's an engineering war happening between publishing engineers and the ad blocking uh, technical engineers, and a lot of people said that you know this is extortion, and I got up and said yeah, this is wrong. The, the answer is it is wrong. The ad blocking and the the extortion model of it is wrong. At the same time, what was infuriating and still is, is that the ad blocking software doesn't quote unquote declare itself. So detection of who actually has an ad blocker installed became our biggest stumbling block in that conversation with the end user. And over time, we learned from some of the larger publishing members um, who are out there in public experimenting, give us feedback to understand exactly how it was to message those people, to explain to them the value proposition that they've opted into the free content, ask them to make a decision. Um, And this is where, uh, whether or not the business decision was to limit access or, or, um, uh, because if you think about it, if you can't monetize those users who have ad blockers, that's just costs going out the door. And if you're an entity who is a for-profit entity, which most every news publisher is, Um, you have a public service good on certain things, you know, severe weather alerts and these types of things. But generally speaking, you have to be able to monetize those experiences. Otherwise, you can't maintain your journalistic uh, systems. We knew that. So that's where the DEAL acronym came from. But my argument was it's not in replace of lean. And if you're not doing the DEAL if you're doing the deal right, you should be offering up the alternative of a lean experience, a good user experience. Because if, if you're just offering up the deal, um, you know, given the fact that the, that the saturation of publishing on, on the public Internet is out there, the barrier of entry is really low to be able to produce, uh, those users can find somewhere else to go. So you really should exercise your best customer service as you possibly can. We were in the measurement business for, for years and years. And we found this steady growth of blocking. And reasonably early on, we started to message across hundreds of sites to try and, to try and see what one could do to moderate um, an ad block user's behavior. And essentially what we found is that asking nicely does not work because as it becomes mainstream, I, I suspect they're viewing uh, ad blocking software as a convenience, like a remote control. Um, that, again, is not to say that, that one does not need to fix uh, the experience. Um, but what, let, let me ask you what you make of the Facebook approach. So this was, I'd, I'd say it was mildly controversial when it happened. Um, back in August last year, Facebook announced that they had uh, surveyed um, their users using Ipsos, a research consultancy, and um, found a range of problems with the ads that they had, the problems were not severe. Um, It's fair to say, I think, that people were not blocking Facebook ads by and large as their primary target. They were probably a collateral victim 
of blocking of, of far worse sites with far worse ads. But anyway, so Facebook's approach was, let's listen to our users, let's fix the problems. And once we fix the problems, we're going to show the ads in a tamper-proof way. And after about a week and a half, two weeks of engineering back and forth, that is, is actually what they managed to do and, and the ads are still on, on the site. What do you make of that as an approach? I think it's fine. I mean, it, it, it goes back to um, tech and, and explain and understand. I mean, you know, it goes back to my first response. Someone said, what do we do about ad block? I said, well, have you asked them, right? I mean, you know, have you had this conversation with, you know, your customer? And one of those, Facebook was able to reach out, get some data, first party information of conversations with their consumers. That's good customer service. Let me modify my product for you based on needs. I mean, to me, it's it's not that complicated. Uh, I think for Facebook though to do it is different necessarily than uh, possibly a, a, a you know a Metro Daily News organization and or or um, some other type of, of uh, content and or social engagement that a product might have. So, um, I, Facebook's approach, while fantastic. Uh, and, and it works around you know their model. The question becomes: Can it be applied to other content structures and other content organizations that may not enjoy that type of lock-in with those end users? And, and I don't know the answer to that, except for my my uh, my feedback to the publishing community was: Continue to experiment, continue to have conversations with your customer, and you'll find out what their what I call pricing elasticity of user tolerance. Like, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's something to experiment with. You know, as a vendor in this area, we're offering publishers a range of things. And on that menu essentially is an invitation to experiment. So a publisher comes to us looking for a solution and they're handed in, in most cases by the sales side, a list of things that they can move between over time. So there's the, there's the simple stuff like messaging, which is a first step for many publishers if they have not already done this. But the big people have. I mean, that, that has been done now several years ago. Um, another option is run the, the risk of restricting access to content, which, which might work for some of our clients. Now, I would limit that. I, maybe you'd agree. Um, I would limit that to the big TV players who have exclusive video content. You know, I, I think if you were back at the, if you were back at USA Today and someone suggested that we're going to restrict access to content for a paywall or any other paywall style thing, you'd have to think long and hard. And then the, the third option is fix the offer, right? Fix the ads, keep it simple. Now, uh, we've run our own surveys, but, but a lot of these publishers have as well. And I think they found pretty much the same thing as us, that around about 77% of people, this is in our last report, and these are ad block users, say they'll tolerate rectangles, <laughs> pictures of products that don't jump around the screen and that essentially the lean display standard. And this format doesn't seem to annoy people. So this is, is something I think that's very uh, similar to the Facebook approach. And we've been doing this with publishers now, uh, quite a few publishers for well over a year, for longer than Facebook has been 
taking their approach. And there is no negative pushback, which is a remarkable result. And what I, what I, I, I fear that there's been a dogma building around the denial of access. And it reminds me of the defensiveness that you saw with the record industry and MP3s. And it's, it's a comforting thing for the industry to claim that they can deny access. But so few publishers have actually been able to run a paywall strategy. It, it would be odd for them to imagine that they could run a denial of access strategy. Absolutely. I, uh, in Media News Group and Digital First Media, as you mentioned, John Payton is the CEO. And, and our, our strategy was to collect time if we needed to stay in business. And we also did try 34 paywalls. And, um, <laughs> That's a lot of paywalls. We did a lot. I mean, you, you think about all the local news properties we had across the country. We tried 34 of them. We tested these, and none of them worked. One, one grew uh, subscription revenue by 300%, which means I think we went from one to three subscribers. Um, so, you know, it... it we tried this, and, and, and so local news in some of these smaller towns um, was not uh, it, the consumers there were not didn't have the appetite to pay for these things. And and I and I actually think from a hypothesis perspective, now we're seeing it play out with how um, the the because of our experiments have failed around these things that the editorial in these small towns have dropped so much that. This is where fake news has been uh, gone on the rise. It's a whole separate topic, but it's a fascinating discussion. You know, the the I think on the deal program, limit and lift is subjective based on the content that you own. So at USA Today, I can't speak for them anymore. It's been a long time since I've been there, but you know, clearly the brilliance of USA Today as a brand and usatoday.com was really more about the rich media visual storytelling packaging itself versus the textual content, um, except for some of the columns and, and these types of things. So if you think about that brand versus the larger newsroom of like the Wall Street Journal, which already has the subscription wall, these models and the content reflect who they are. And at the end of the day, when I say uh, limits or lift on those restrictions and with those working groups that were put together that document, it was very much of a detect, explain to the consumer, understand what they're looking for, understand your own business, and you can choose to limit access or lift the restrictions based on your comfort zone, the percentage of the blocking, these types of things. So it's not a uh, for me, the deal wasn't a it's it's all or not. It's very much of a gray area based on how you want to engage your consumer. But again, I go back to if you're not offering up good user experience and good customer service, you're not going to know how to actually play the deal. You're really not. And if you're not engaging your customer on these things and having that understanding and that conversation with them, then you're probably going to um, you're probably going to have a losing hand. <laughs> yeah. So, so when you say limit or lift, you're saying essentially restricting access for some publishers, which is exactly, this is the same thing that we say to our clients. So restrict access for some publishers and don't restrict access for others. Just find a way to show ads, but provided the ads aren't annoying, make sure that you're conforming to the lean standards. In the, in the lean principles, you know, there's some, there's some real binary, um, 
principles there, like make sure it's ad choice is supported, make sure that you can do your best with encryption, take care of the user, know what parties you're working with programmatically speaking, you know, and the ad payloads that come down. I mean, you know, set your business rules in programmatic. For example, if you, if you basically are working with an SSP exchange and you say, you know what, here's my fill. And by the way, our business rule is no in banner video, no audio on, Make sure you're following up with your SSP exchange on those business rules because that destroys the customer satisfaction at this time. So there's let a me, lot. Let me ask you then about a, a big picture of the future. Um, so we're we're obsessed with the ad blocking issue and where it's going, right? And where where I think we see this ending up is that more people than not will probably ultimately have an ad blocker uh, of some form. It might be that it's built into their browser automatically, right? As is the case for browsers that aren't big in the West, but are big in Asia Pacific. So this doesn't need to be about desktop versus mobile. We think it'll apply generally. So I think probably the online population, or at least the blocked web will become bigger than the web and the web may actually in that sense go away. Um, it'll still be the web, but people will be blocking ads. Uh, but I don't think that means there'll be no ads. At the bottom of the market, you probably have the equivalent of spam. <laughs> There's the arbitrage sites, maybe they're run by bots, maybe they're not. And they're still pumping out the worst of the worst, which is why people still use ad blockers to protect them from that stuff. And then there'll be a tier of premium sites who will be shilling ads, however they do it, right? Whichever vendor or whether they make it in-house is immaterial but there'll be a tier of premium websites who'll be using tamper-proof blocking. And for the, for the user, I think what this will do is it will bring them back to your early days. <laughs> It'll bring them back to a point where they are protected against the worst stuff, the kind of stuff that would have won you a Cannes Lion Award 10 years ago or five years ago for innovation. Um, and, and yet they are seeing respectful, reasonably subtle boxes with pictures of products in them. Does that make sense to you? Can you see that happening? Yeah, I mean, I could see that happening. And, and so isn't that market dynamics to a certain extent? Mm -hmm. and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, net neutrality uh, opened up a lot of doors here in the U.S. And, and frankly, around the world to a large extent of, of creating an open, independent Internet. And when you say that um, and then you say that there's uh, money involved, I mean, where there's money, there's crime. And so... What we're finding here is, is that um, TAG and these other structures um, were never, you know, in my mind, they were never meant to um, go hunt down criminals. They were meant to create a safety layer of trusted parties. And so as we more, if, as, as consumers, you know, adopt new technologies for, I won't call it even block, I call it filtration technologies, um, you know, over time, you know, what's going to happen here is, is that they're going to have their utility for trust. The industry is going to have its utilities for trust. And those things end up, uh, you know, organically meeting in the middle um, to a large extent. And, you know, the, the, the frictional barrier of entry, I used to say this, is that the Ivy Tech Lab and the creation of it in the bigger picture of things was meant to reduce friction to unlock dollars in a digital way cross screens. The TAG program was meant to introduce healthy friction in a way 
that good, transparent parties were exposed and business transactions could flow uh, in, a, in an environment that was that was safe. And you know, I think those parties who go through that um, are also offering up good quality user experiences. I would hope in time uh, to consumers, so that the trust manufa uh, is manufactured in such a way that those consumers with that type of tools are accessing that content in a way that, frankly, other markets have enjoyed too. I mean, if you think about you know television and, and DVRs and TiVos and these types of things over the years. In the early days, it was, oh my gosh, how can we, you know, let these things happen with TiVo? Now, think about it, DVR and time shifting, you know, we have to slow them down in television, and, and we'll see this in mobile and other, other uh, distribution avenues as well. Let me ask you as a, maybe a final question about trade bodies. You spent a chunk of your career inside one of the big ones. Uh, we are in the middle of a terrific set of crises uh, in media and advertising. Brands are deeply unhappy. These are the people who put the money into the system that supports content on the open web, and they're not happy. Um, publishers are not just unhappy, they are uh, suffering. Um, so those are two big parties that aren't happy. And I suspect when the realities of GDPR hit, a big chunk of ad tech, possibly all of it, won't be happy either. So, so there's an awful lot of work to be done by trade bodies. Um, are they well shaped to do so? I think it's very interesting that if you're a publisher, and the hypothesis goes, that the EU policies and directives coming down could absolutely benefit the publisher in such a way that it allows them, the traditional publisher, in such a way. When I say traditional, maybe not some of your large social platforms, Google and Facebook would be very explicit there. The traditional publisher, because it forces them to have a conversation with their customer on explicit ownership on transaction of what that data looks like. That helps the traditional publisher, a news publisher or entertainment, uh, own that conversation. And if I'm a trade body in representation of those publishers, I'm not so opposed, possibly, to the regulations that are happening in Europe. If I'm a platform like Google or Facebook or ad tech, if I'm Google or Facebook, I already own that conversation to a large extent of users and their experiences. And uh, I may not want to see these directives go through because that means all these other publishers are going to own that data. And so that's very interesting. Then you have all ad tech and martech and the fight over who owns all the anonymized data and these things. If you're a publisher and you own that conversation and you're explaining to them, hey, if you want access to this, here are all my suppliers and then all the parties that will have access to you. Well, guess what? I mean, obviously, if you're telling that consumer that it's 100 beacons they're going to get versus maybe 10 preferred that the publisher now enjoys that conversation and that conduit, well, guess what? There's gonna be probably a fight and consolidation that's gonna occur. And does that mean it'll tra transfix itself over here in the US? And it'll manifest in very unique ways, I think, because um, if I'm usatoday.com, I still am not really sure whether or not I have to message a European citizen who's hitting my website. And how do I detect and filter? So I think there's still a lot here to be determined, decided, of course, at time. But again, 
those trade bodies, if you take a look at some of their membership, whether it's the agencies or the, the marketers, um, clearly I, I come from the IB for very specific reasons, but I had a membership in my organizations in years past. Um, each one of them is probably going to take a maybe just a little slightly nuanced approach based on what their membership looks like and how to launch in behalf of their membership. And quite frankly, as, as a company in the industry, you're paying the membership, your engagement, your dollars, that's how you're voting. And you should use your influence to, to in those types of forums to make sure that, uh, that they're acting on your behalf. Now, I think your second question was, there's a lot of them. Uh, you know, the market's grown. There's the market's grown, and I think we'll probably see some synergies and partnerships and maybe some consolidation of the trade world eventually, um, you know, in time. <laughs>